Well, we're still in the Alvet Discourse and understanding the times. I'm going to relate a little bit of what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 24 to two major deaths that occurred. One of them, I think you've heard, been somewhat in the news, a giant in the political arena, political conservative And I mentioned that there was a second one. Does anyone know who else died very shortly after? Charles Ryrie, the one that put out the Ryrie Study Bible. So Scalia, Justice Scalia, died February 13th at age 80. And a theological conservative giant also died February 16th, three days later. He was the professor for Dick Evans when he was uh, one. He was also my professor when I was at Dallas Seminary. Okay. Yeah, a giant. He, uh, very, very nice man, very humble. He died a few days short of his 91st birthday. So a theological conservative and a political conservative. We lost hugely to individuals. Now, I like to tell people that I'm more conservative than Rush Limbaugh, because Rush Limbaugh is only a political conservative, and I'm both political and theologically conservative. Make sense? So I'd like to come back to them, because I think they're important in terms of what is going on in the culture today, and you've heard a lot more about Scalia and the appointment of the next Supreme Court Justice, but you may not have heard of Ryrie, kind of representatives of two different areas, but they're related in opposition to two different positions within the broader overall world that we're living in. We'll come back to that. But I want to get to the passage after we look at verse 11. I want to draw some applications from it. We've looked at the setting of the Olivet Discourse. We're in the portion called the Tribulation, beginning in chapter 24, verse 4 through verse 28. So we'll continue in that. And we've looked at, we completed verse 8. And in this, Jesus is referring to this first portion of this Tribulation period. He calls it, uh, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs obviously indicating that things will get far more severe as we get further into the Great Tribulation. And in fact, everything is on the verge of collapse by the time the Lord returns. And Matthew is going to give us some insight on that as we continue in. So we're looking at at least the first three and a half years, which is the beginning of birth pangs, which means the last three and a half, they become even more intense than the ones that we're looking at in the first three and a half years. In my outline, I see verses 4 through 14 dealing with the first three and a half years, and there's a significant event that's described in verse 15, and then some other things related to it that deal with the second three and a half years. We'll get there eventually, hopefully. So, the beginning of birth pangs, we've seen the first one are... False Christs that bring deception. In fact, this whole period, the main characteristics of this period is deception. 
And we're going to look at verse 11. It talks about deception again. So, an emphasis. Matthew, recording the words of Christ, refers to it again, even in uh, the later part of this part dealing with the tribulation period. 6 through 8, another geopolitical issue that goes on, as well as geophysical situations. Disasters. This period of time, disaster after disaster after disaster. If you read the book of Revelation, all kinds of things going on during that period of time. God is doing something unusual, something special during those seven-year tribulation period, during that time. Part of that is he's awakening people. He's bringing them to an awareness, the fragile condition of mankind and how he needs the Lord. Now, in verse 14, we we won't get there today, but we'll see that there's one positive that takes place during that period of time. And all these things are geared to awaken people so that they have no excuse They're going to have all of the warnings, all of the things that happen, all of the disasters to make them wake up in order that they may receive the gospel message. And if you read verse 14, the gospel will be proclaimed during this period of time. In fact, the results of that, one of the points I want to make, will be that that will be the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. Greater than the Great Awakening, greater than any other revival that you can think of. Greater than the Reformation. That's the only positive of this period of time. So, disasters, some of them physical, some of them wars, man-made, obviously. Last week we focused on verse 9. There's going to be tremendous persecution of believers. So I had to spend some time to explain where do these believers come from if the church is raptured. So we had to deal with all of the issues dealing with the rapture, the different views. And if our view is correct, then after the rapture, there are no believers on the face of the earth, for at least a few seconds anyway. And then God raises up prophets, 144,000 evangelists, and there's this tremendous revival. So the, the ones that are converted during that period of time will experience severe persecution, unlike any other period of time. And the one thing that I didn't add last time is the parallel of that persecution with the book of Revelation. I've been making the point that this seven years is a unique period of time, and Jesus is describing what's taking place during that seven-year period. The main argument that I'm using is because of the parallels with what uh, is described in the book of Revelation. And I mentioned the first thing that we have at the very beginning is this false peace that is established by an antichrist, the antichrist. Now, Jesus says there will be others, but there will be one that is most prominent. And the parallel is the first seal judgment is this individual that rides in on a white horse. He's a deceiver portraying himself like a messianic figure on a white horse, but in fact he is the Antichrist. And the book of Revelation develops that later. The peace is short-lived, and there's war. That's the second seal judgment. And that's what Jesus gives us. Wars, rumors of wars. The third seal judgment, and you might say the result of war, is famine. 
That's the third seal judgment. So you have that parallel there. And uh, there's also a fourth seal judgment that is not paralleled in Matthew, but it makes sense that after wars, after famine, the product of that obviously is death. In fact, why don't we read that passage? Would uh, somebody read Revelation? This is the the uh, fourth horseman, chapter six in the Book of Revelation, verses seven and eight. Who's got that? You got it, Jim. So that's the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, "Come." I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it has contained death. Hades was fallen with him. The fourth of the earth, global conditions. If the earth is seven billion people today, the fourth of that is twenty-five percent. What? One point seven five billion people. As a result of the seal judgment or the accumulation of the effects of all that has preceded the wars, famines, etc. That's unimaginable. Now, if you look at the Olivet Discourse, I've been kind of giving you little hints in that. What Jesus is describing, he's not describing things taking place on a very small local basis. He's talking about global issues. He's talking about all nations. He's talking about Global situations that deal with the whole world. In fact, he uses that word and things that are global. Book of Revelation gives us some of the detail to it. Fourth seal judgment is one that wipes out a quarter of the population. Can you imagine that? What's a quarter of Albuquerque? Over a 100,000 people, maybe 150,000 if you take in the whole area here, died as a result during the seven-year tribulation. This is huge. Fourth seal judgment, one-fourth of uh, population. <clears throat> Just kind of to seal it in your mind, give you a visual. If you don't see it, you don't believe it, right? But you're going to have conditions like this all over the world. Mass death, mass graves worldwide. Now, the fifth seal is the parallel that we have in Matthew's Gospel. We need to read that one. Would somebody read 9 through 11? In fact, uh, let's take our time as we work our way through that. Got that one? Revelation uh, 6, 9. There's the fifth seal. I saw under the soul those who the word of God Okay, hold off there. What What is he seeing? He's seeing a vision of people. Where are they, first of all? Under the altar, this is a heavenly scene, and they're slain for what reason? Because of their testimony. These are believers that are martyred, as Jim points out. Keep reading. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long will you until you judge and blood unto the Okay, they have died. They're looking at things, they're in heaven, they're looking at things from God's perspective. All of this is a result of judgment that is deserved. They have died innocently and they're crying for justice. So they're asking God to bring justice. And what is the answer 
Okay, through the book of Revelation, you see people with white robes. This is a picture of their completed salvation. This is a picture of glorification, a picture of basically a heavenly state, a resurrected state. And you see that throughout the book of Revelation. Keep reading. Okay, so there's going to be more martyrs. So they've got to wait out the seven-year period of time until it's all completed. And then God is going to bring justice. He's going to bring judgment. But the point I'm making here is the fifth seal judgment parallels what Jesus is speaking of in the Olivet Discourse. So they're before the altar and they're martyrs. We saw that in verse 9. Just another visual here. Severe persecution and even martyrdom. So we have a parallel with the first seal judgment, a parallel with the second, a parallel with the third, and then the result of the first three is death, which is the fourth seal judgment. And now in the fifth seal judgment, we have a parallel in terms of martyrs. See the parallel? And very clearly, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, is the beginning of the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, and that spans that whole period of time. And I think what we have is something of a panoramic picture of that first seven years, and then the rest of the book of Revelation goes back and gives some of the details. So I think John gives us or at least the Holy Spirit gives us kind of a picture of the whole period of time, because the sixth one it takes place at the very end of that seven-year period. At least that's the chronology that I see there. So, the beginning of birth pangs. We have antichrists, false christs, seal. We have war. This is on the timeline. And I think they proceed throughout that period of time. They begin and then continue. Wars, rumors of wars. In fact, the wars become more intense such that at the end, there's Armageddon, the very end. Famines will continue and persist because things will not improve. Things will just continue to deteriorate. And the result of that, the fourth seal is death. And now the fifth seal is martyrdom. Verses 9 through 11 in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. So I think they begin in this first three and a half years, but persist throughout. So that's the way I like to chart it on a timeline. We looked at verse 10, which I think is related to verse 9, but I separate it out because it's a separate sentence. We have the downfall of the many, that's where we left off. And now we have more deception, now we have false prophets. We had false Christs at the beginning, now we have false Prophets. So the emphasis is great deception during this period of time. Many false prophets will arise. Now, false prophets in Scripture, if you notice carefully, false prophets predominantly are related to the nation of Israel again. And I think most of what we have in these early chapters deal with the nation of Israel, not the church. In the church, if you study the New Testament, you have words related with the word false. In fact, they're one word in the Greek text, and we use two words to describe them. 
in the church there are false teachers. And particularly closer to the end of the church age, there will be more and more false teachers. And certainly we see that in our culture today. Lots of false doctrine amongst us. In fact, I'm going to camp on that and focus on one whole area of thinking of false doctrine today. So there's false teachers in the church. Can anyone think of some other related uh, leaders that are false? False teachers besides false prophets. Well, yeah, the specific false teacher, yeah. But I'm thinking in terms of biblically... Descriptive, descriptive words. Jenny? Yeah. Someone who uh, is a Christian and, and a teacher, but is more concerned about what the world says about something. Okay, so much influenced by the world that he compromises the word. That's a mild form of false teaching. Okay. Well, let me give it to you. There are false apostles. False apostles. It's a word that's used in the New Testament. In fact, I had to give you some verses for these. Lots of false teachers, several passages. For example, 2 Peter 2.1 for false teachers, false apostles, 2 Corinthians 11.13. There are also false brethren. In other words, people that are in the church claim to be Christians but do not have regeneration. Do not have the the work of the Holy Spirit within them, Jesus calls that without the new birth, born again, without that regenerating work in the Spirit, in the inside. Second Corinthians 11.26 is a passage relating the, to false brethren. Connie? Um, we talked about this, but I'm going to give you a little weird Well, some of those that are occupying those offices within the later church age would be considered false apostles. Because I think after the first century, they were utilized by God to establish the church. The church, Ephesians, what is it, 2, it speaks of the church founded on prophets and apostles. And those apostles, I think, in terms of office, no longer exist. Now, there may be a gift of apostleship, which is different. And a person with that gift would be a person that founds churches. But in terms of the office, if anyone claims an office, then they come close to being a false apostle. And, for example, Mormonism has false apostles. Those are false apostles. And there were false apostles in the first century. They're referred to in the New Testament. So we have false teachers relating to the church, false apostles, false brothers. But in terms of Israel, false messiahs, Christos, anointed ones, saviors, if you will, false messiahs. Now, they also influence the church, but they will be prominent in the tribulation period when Israel again is beginning to sort out who is the Messiah. There's going to be a false one. And there's going to be the gospel presented that presents the true Messiah. So people in the tribulation are going to make a decision. First of all, Israel, nation of Israel. False prophets are also associated with the nation of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament. 
And again, it spills over, and there are false prophets that have influence on the church as well. But in this context, I think Israel is predominantly in view. So we have false Christ, false prophets that influence not only Israel, but the broader community of believers. I want to call it the church because the church is not during, not existing in that seven-year period of time. So in the Old Testament, I think the first one is Satan himself. And the reason for that, what is the definition of a prophet? Say that again. Well, that's one function, but give me a better definition, Jim. Someone that speaks forth the word of God. Someone that speaks the word of God. Mark agrees with that. Okay. In other words, they are a spokesman for God. In a sense, if you remember the story of Moses and Aaron, and Moses says, well, you know, I, I don't know English very well, or in his case Hebrew, I don't speak very well, and God set who up as a prophet for Moses? Aaron was his spokesman. That's the essence and the function of a prophet. One that speaks for someone else, and in the ultimate sense, one that speaks for God, one that reveals, one that brings revelation that God reveals, a spokesman for God. So a false prophet is somebody that brings a false word Something that is not of God, that is authoritative. And that's what Satan does in Genesis 3, 1, when we have the first temptation of Adam and Eve. David? That would be someone who's self-appointed. Self-appointed, or someone that is viewed, but in fact does not have a word from God. I think Satan would be the first false prophet. There's also several warnings, particularly the most prominent one is Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Moses warns that there will be false prophets that will deceive people. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, a warning of Moses. Israel is going to be plagued with false prophets. And we see the fulfillment of it. One example, a very prominent one, the prophets of Baal. There were 450 prophets of Baal. These are false prophets. Baal is a false god. They brought a word to Israel and the confrontation with the prophet of God. Remember which one? Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 18 through 40. Probably the most vivid example in the Old Testament of the fulfillment of what Moses predicted. But they're not the only ones. There were several others. Also, we have the true prophets continually warning of false prophets, like Isaiah. One passage, Isaiah 30.10, and there's several others as well. Jeremiah warns of false prophets. So Israel was plagued with false prophets. In other words, people that claimed to have a word from God spoke that word, and that word was not from God. It was, in the case of the Baal prophets, from a false god which would ultimately be from Satan himself. So these are false prophets. During the tribulation, I think Israel will be plagued with more false prophets. Jewish people will be plagued with false prophets. That's Matthew 24, 11. And there's lots of other passages in the Old Testament. Connie? Isn't it at the same exact time that the witnesses, Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses are there? Yeah, the true, the true prophets. Yeah, 
In fact, I mentioned, when we were talking about where do the, these new believers come from, I think in terms of the sequence, Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses that have all of the characteristics of prophets. And in fact, I think they are specifically Moses and Elijah that God brings back. And they prophesy for three and a half years. How many days was that? 1260. And then it talks about another 42 months in that context, Revelation 11. Yes, so you have true prophets, but you're going to also have these false prophets. So many prophets will arise and will mislead many. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of deception and false concepts, false doctrine, false words from God during this period of time. In fact, uh, there's lots of passages in the New Testament that warn of this period of time, and I want to look at some of them. But let me uh, kind of bring this home, first of all, and discuss a kind of a broad perspective. In fact, you could even consider it a worldview. We won't look at all the aspects of this worldview. But we are affected by a lot of thinking today. And the reason I mention it is because it spills over in a lot of areas of life. And the example I'm going to use it has spilled over even in the judicial system. And what we describe here is postmodernism. Now, you don't need to know all the details about postmodernism, but let's focus on the central aspect of postmodernism. It's a whole idea that is contrary to biblical thinking. And this is very prominent in our culture. You see it in literature, and you see it in law, you see it in the courts. But let's describe kind of the heart of it and the essence of it. The essence of postmodernism, it denies absolute truth. In other words, absolute truth is not absolute. It doesn't exist in postmodern thinking. Now, you probably run into people that are affected by postmodern thinking. Another thing is truth is relative. Here's where it infects the church. What we mean by truth is relative what may be true for you may not be true for me, and vice versa. Truth is very flexible. It's, it's relative. So it doesn't have these absolute boundaries. Something may be true for you and not for me. That's what the homosexuals say. Well, maybe you don't believe in homosexuality. Well, that's your truth. But to me, homosexuality is valid, and that's my truth. That's postmodern thinking. You see that? In that particular area. But it spills over into other areas. Truth is relative. When it comes to literature, and you try to understand literature, the emphasis in understanding a writer is not so much what that writer spoke of. Does that make sense? But instead, how does that passage that this writer, and I'm not talking about scripture necessarily, But how does what that writer wrote impact me and how can I interpret it from my perspective? From my perspective. So the truth is relative in terms of who I am. So it doesn't matter what the author intended. What I'm supposed to do is to derive from that writing how it might impact me. That's why it's relative. It's it's not 
what the author intended. Now that's very, very important. That's postmodernism. And the way that it infects the believer is people say today, that passage means this to me. You get that? This is how this passage impacts me, and it may be different in terms of how it impacts you. Now, that goes contrary to the basic hermeneutical principles. I'm going to contrast this. Can this spill over That's what I'm going to get to, yeah. Right, exactly. Yes, we're going to get there. Linda. This uh, you can see right away that it devours itself. It devours itself? Yeah, there's... Truth is relative, is an absolute. Yeah, according to them, that would be an absolute. <laughs> exactly. That's that's how to answer it. Good. Well, let's contrast that. That's post-modern thinking. It affects literature. It affects interpretation of Bible. It, it affects many other areas as well. Personal relationships, how we interpret communication, so it deals with communication, and it also will will get to deals with the whole court system. The biblical worldview is totally contrary to that. What about absolute truth? Do we believe in absolute truth? Absolutely. (laughs) All right, very good. There is absolute truth. In fact, God is truth. John 3.33. Absolute truth is focused and centered in God himself. He is truth. He is absolute truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth. Jesus is absolute truth. He is absolute truth. And you would expect that the Holy Spirit, he's called the Spirit of Truth. So, absolute truth is centered in God. This is the reason why postmodernism denies the existence of absolute truth, because it denies the existence of God. It's generally atheistic. Truth is centered in God. And God has revealed truth in his word. Jesus says in John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. That is absolute truth. This is absolute truth. Doesn't mean we always understand it. Doesn't mean that we always properly interpret it. But we have available to us absolute truth, which is totally contrary to the thinking of the culture in which we live in. And if there is absolute truth, what about uh, truth in terms of relativity? There is not relative truth. The focus is the revelation that God has given, and that is absolute truth. Which means when we come to interpreting scripture and how we should interpret one another, we want to get to understanding one another. And the only way to do that is what does the author intend? Author's intent. Now when I'm speaking to you, I don't want you to take what I'm saying and say, well, he said this, but it means this to me. I want to communicate clearly, as clearly as I can, and I want you to understand what I am trying to communicate in my mind. I want you to understand my intent and not take my words and do with them as you see fit because truth is not relative. So this is the case in terms of everyday communication. You want to be understood. 
In fact, a major problem in marriage is people just sometimes don't understand what one another is communicating. And women communicate somewhat differently than men, and there's a communication gap sometimes. Yeah, I see a lot of elbows here. (laughs) So, what you want to do is get at what did that communicator, what was his intent? And particularly, this is the most fundamental of all hermeneutical principles. What did the original author of Scripture intend? Not what do I want him to say, but what did the original author intend to communicate? And ultimately, we have human authors that are inspired. That means that God superintended their communication. But we also have the divine author behind the human authors. That's what we believe in in terms of inspiration. Very key. It affects the church because there's a lot of believers that make the Bible say what they want it to say rather than trying to figure out what did the Holy Spirit intend. So how does that affect theology? Well, that's one of the reasons why there are so many theological systems and differences among theology is people don't have the same hermeneutical principle. And as people are more affected by postmodern thought, you have a, a greater divergence in terms of theological thought. Ryrie was a conservative and a giant in the area of theology. Written several books, including the Ryrie Study Bible, and unfortunately we have lost a giant of the faith last week. Now, how does it affect government and law? And this is very important because I think our country is on the verge of losing its constitution. The thing that has made the country great, the thing that has made the country what it is, not so much today, but in more recent times. There are two different approaches to government and law represented by the Supreme Court. And the difference is this difference that I put before you. One is called conservative, the other is called liberal. One is called constitutionist, or constructionist as well. The other is, what's the name of it? Progressive would be one word, and there's other words as well. But there's two ways, and and the, the court today is split. And unfortunately, even the ones that are conservative were swayed, I think, by postmodern thought when they most recently... John Roberts voted in favor of preserving basically the uh, Affordable Care Act or Obama Care. There's two approaches. The first one is the Constitution is a living document. In other words, it's flexible. You can make it say what you want it to say. And what liberals typically do is they find things in the Constitution that the original writers never intended. But if it's a living and flexible document, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's what happened with Roe versus Wade. They found somewhere in the Constitution a right of privacy that does not exist in the document. You can't find it. You have to read it in. So they call the Constitution a living document. If we select the wrong Supreme Court justice we may lose the First Amendment. 
relating to freedom of religion. And what's already under attack is the Second Amendment. And decisions are being made on the basis of politics, not on the basis of the Constitution. I think the emphasis in our circle today is on case law. Case law, which is basically another study in this relative living document. It can be parted from livestock. Okay, more, more detail. The difference here, this is one approach. This is the liberal approach. So decisions are being made not based on what, on the words of the Constitution. Decisions are being made in terms of whether this supports a liberal ideology or not. And that is happening right before our eyes. The second approach is looking at what did the framers intend. That's the Scalia's. That's the uh, Justice Thomas's end. And I think that's the proper approach to interpreting the Constitution. What did the initial writers of the Constitution intend? And you stick to that, and that preserves the Constitution. Make sense? All right. So, the political conservative, we lost another giant. And depending on what happens in the next few months and who is elected in the next term will determine, I think, much of the future of the United States. We're already, I think, on a precipice looking at going over the cliff. So, Justice Scalia was a huge loss. Who knows what the future has. Jenny? You mean the First Amendment? Second? Oh, okay, right to bear arms. Jim? appreciates Jim's comments because he's always one step ahead of me. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> no, that's good because that, that means he's thinking along the same lines. Just a little cartoon here and this is really what we're faced with. Scalia is a defender of the Constitution and particularly the First and Second Amendments and uh, the Obama uh, replacement, if he is replaced, will be on the far radical other end of the spectrum of postmodern thought. Yeah, I think Paul said in Romans that we've got to choose our leader. And that, and that scares me, but it also comforts me. Right. Because we, we see what's going on. Right. Leading up to this leading up to... Right. Now, we're going to find, we're going to see, if you study Bible prophecy, the United States is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. So something's going to happen to our country, a possibility we are going to diminish in influence 
as we get closer to the second coming. We may be seeing the events leading up to that. And what God does with nations, nation, like you say, nations are raised up and nations are put down. But people's decisions are also part of the equation, if you will. The United States, I think, has prospered and has grown and has become a great influence because of our founding and because of what we have committed with the original founders of our country who have had a biblical worldview and, in general, promoted godliness and things related to, to, to Scripture. As we have departed from that, there comes a point where God brings, and by the way, this passage deals with the tribulation period. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. Notice, God is sending a false concept on people. And if you read the passage, so that they will believe what is false, that is during this tribulation period. Twelve, in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There's a biblical principle that if people that are exposed to truth, like we have in our country, as they reject it, there comes a point in time when God gives them up. Romans 1. Now that happens on an individual basis, but I think it happens on a national basis. We may be there. I think what we need is revival to turn that around, but if there's no revival, we may either be heading in this direction or we may already be there. And the masses that accept this new worldview, postmodernism, and that thinking and that approach, it infects all of these other areas, and unless people's thinking are reversed as a result of transformation within uh, then we may be at that point where God has abandoned the United States, which is sad to think about. So this is a very key passage. This deals with the tribulation period, but it's not going to just happen overnight. Linda, you had a comment? Um, well, there is also, like in the lecture Thursday night, modernism, where the only thing true is, there is absolute truth, it's only scientific, and the religion is... Uh, but even scientific truths among scientists is not is not absolute truth. But it, it, whatever they say, that is the fact. Right. Right. But even even that con- that concept is based on um, a biblical foundation, and even the whole scientific structure is undermined by postmodern thought. Well, we don't have time, but we'll get into verse 12 next week. The deadening of love, 12 and 13. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. I'm going to come back to that Second Thessalonians passage next week because it's related to this next passage as well. But uh, we need to be in prayer. We need to support those that I, I think support our ideology, our worldview particularly as we look forward to selecting new leaders. And there are leaders that, in fact, hold to our biblical worldview that are up for election in this election cycle. It doesn't look 
good right now, but there are people there that share what we believe and are protectors of this whole ideology that you and I believe in. Closing thought, measure all things by absolute truth, by scripture. We live in times of deception and in the next passage, lawlessness, even at the governmental level. Who wants to close in prayer for us? Jim. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do ask that the diversity of this country and the state, but we do ask that the spirit of the world be that we 